Begin driving. Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? Welcome to Noam on the Move. A podcast looking at how transportation evolved throughout the years and how disruptive technologies will continue to transform it. Here's your host, Noam Metal. You have reached your destination. Welcome to another episode of Noam on the Move. I'm thrilled to have Shailen Bhatt here with me today. Shailen Bhatt's the president and CEO of Intelligent Transportation Society of America, or as we know it, ITS America, where he's in charge both of advancing policies and development for intelligent transportation technologies across the U.S. In his previous role, he's been in a unique position of leading not one, but two states, both the Colorado Department of Transportation as their executive director, and before that as a cabinet secretary for the Delaware Department of Transportation. So really bringing a unique and vast perspective of both geographies, but also private and public sector, and excited to have you today. I should also mention, no less impressive is the fact that Shailen's an active hockey player, and that's not a common thing you'll find today among the transportation uh, executives. Yeah, so I am willing to jump on the ice with any DOT secretary that is out there. Now, one of them could me make me eat a little rubber for my temerity of saying that. But yeah, I think I'm the only one who plays hockey right now and still has all my teeth. Okay, so I think there's a challenge that was already posed here. So all of you uh, DOT directors out there that are listening in, uh, challenge posed by Shailen. Shailen, so again, thank you for being here. And before we jump into concepts around mobility, both future and the past, and I think we have a lot to talk about today. I always find it helpful to actually take a step back or maybe even zoom in, you could say, from some of these broad transportation concepts that we talk about wide spans of geographies or even countries and really narrow it down to a personal level and how it affects every single one of us. In the end, mobility, as much as it's conceptual, it's also personal how we get from point A to point B, and what does that accessibility provide for us? What does it mean to each and every one of us? So I'd love for you maybe to share with us, how has transportation and mobility affected you in your personal life and what role has it played for you? Yeah, you know, I was um, I was kind of a dorky kid. Shocking, I'm sure, to those who know me, or not so shocking, perhaps. And, you know, I was always really interested in roads and how they would connect with places. And I just found it fascinating. I've studied history and, you know, you just sort of start to see cities grow up and, and the way that they were connected both, you know, through over land and by sea and civilizations rise and fall through transportation. And then just very early in my life, I think I was in like the second or third grade. And I, I'd grown up in this relatively small town in Ontario and just east of town, there was a big car crash one Friday night. There were In one car, there were these five young men who all went to the high school and in the other car was a wife, a husband and wife, a couple returning home, head-on collision at night and everybody dies. Obviously in our town, it was a big deal because everybody knew somebody was connected to that crash. But for me as a as a eight-year-old or nine-year-old, it wasn't the you know five, 17-year-old boys dying that was a big deal. It was the parents that died because they were they had a family of their own. They had three kids. And it just really terrified me that my parents could do something pretty normal and routine, which is get in the car and go for a drive and never come home. That has just kind of stuck with me. And, you know, when I was at USDOT, we would talk about how there were 35,000 or 38,000 
deaths on the roadways when I went to Colorado. The year I got there, there were like 484 fatalities. And when I left a few years later, we were up over 700. I think for me, at the end of the day, we all have real expectations about things, right? We turn the lights on, the light goes on, we open the faucet, water comes out, we get in a car, we get to our destination. And for far too many Americans and people across the world, that doesn't always happen. And so that's where I come at it. That's sort of like the underlying emphasis for me. And then all of this technology and mobility stuff has kind of grown out of that. So I wanted to jump into mobility concepts and talk about where, where you've been focusing there. But but really, your answer is nudging me right to follow a little further on that path on the safety side, because just very recently, uh, National Safety Council came out with some staggering numbers around increases, actually, in fatalities per mile driven over the last six months. And I've talked about this at large about the concept of habituation. And, you know, we, you talked about these staggering numbers of fatalities every year, not just 2020 or 2019. And maybe a little bit cynical, we've kind of just accepted it as commonplace, the, the public at large, of course, not, not any individual per se. How do we break that concept and A, get those numbers actually moving in the right direction in a meaningful way and B, break that cycle of habituation that, that we're in right now? One, if I had the right answer, I, would, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be doing <laughs> what I'm doing, right? I would have like figured it out and, and sold it. I, I think though, what we're doing isn't working. And I say that because, uh, and again, I say this in the context of Americans, Americans don't like to be told what to do, right? We, we don't want to wear protective gear. We don't want to be told to wear a seatbelt. We don't want to be told to not drink and drive. We don't want to be told to not use our phones. I mean, every message that we have is don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And we do it and we continue to do it. And that's why I'm such an evangelist for technology and transportation, because We've pretty clearly demonstrated as a species, you know, going back to the 1950s when there were like 50,000 deaths on American roadways, and we got it down to about 30,000 in the early 2010s because VMT, vehicle miles traveled, had come down. And now we're back up. And as you mentioned, you know, fatalities have gone up, even though road uh, usage has come down this year. I, I just feel like we always talk about distracted driving. To my mind, Driving for a lot of people is now the distraction from what they want to be doing. They want to be swiping left and right on their phones. They they want to know how many people have liked their latest post or their Instagram photo. They want to know that that they're going to get that little surge of dopamine, and that is much more important to them than some of the safety aspects. So I would say the short answer is we're going to have to deploy technology at scale so that things like automatic emergency braking take over when somebody's like, I'm looking down at my phone or looking at my child, or getting yelled at by my spouse, instead of having my eyes on the road. Is it fair to say that what you're saying is that the path forward to see meaningful results moves a little bit away from focusing on the human element of how do I educate the driver to change his behavior, to how do I get the vehicle to have the right safety mechanisms from a technology perspective, so that the driver can't even make those decisions, if you say against you know, those bad judgment calls, if you will. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that we have done a great job of engineering safety into that which we could, right? So you go back to roads in America and, you know, you have Eisenhower go across the country after World War I and realize, you know, this is not good. 
And then he sees Germany in, in, in the 1930s and he's like, that is good. And so we start designing freeways and then we designed a bunch of safety into the roadways themselves, right? So when you go and drive across America today, the interstates for the most part, they're all designed the same. They have maximum curve allowances, you know, they have uniform speed limits and exits all look the same. And we have design characteristics that are the same across the country. We have clear zones. We don't let you put like stuff that you might run into and kill yourself. The signs all break away. The vehicles themselves, we've engineered crumple zones and and airbags and safety belts. So we have engineered all of the safety that we can into the system. The next step here is to now focus where the majority of crashes are caused, and that is by human error, human behavior, bad choices. So whether it's a distracted driver, a drowsy driver, an intoxicated driver, you know, we need to merge technology with that. And that represents, I believe, the next wave of innovation that allows us to finally drive this number down. So that's a good segue, I guess, to talking about technology. As someone that leads a, a technology company, when you talk about adoption in the consumer market or even enterprise market, there's very, I wouldn't call it formulaic, but there's known parameters of how you operate. And then you get to government, which is a whole nother beast of operation. And a lot of these innovations we're talking about have to happen on the back of policy changes on government and public sector cooperation. And you've been on both sides of the aisle in terms of aligning goals and advancing these new innovations. So talk to me a little bit about the intersection of, of both the public and private and how do we align those incentives together so that we're achieving meaningful and, and more rapid type of transformation than what we have today? I hear this a lot from folks, right? Because, you know, there's innovators out there like you and others I spent a lot of time with. I, I, well, I used to spend a lot of time in Silicon Valley. Now I just call in. But, you know, I, I would often hear this from my friends on the tech side, you know, and, and this is famous quote, they tell them to fail and fail quickly. Because, you know, if you're failing quickly, then you're, you're getting on to the actual solution. And I think it's a little overused. I think if you fail enough in the private sector, you're encouraged to go fail elsewhere. Because, you know, we all want to meet with success. I'll tell you, I've been appointed by three governors and one president on the public sector side, and nobody's ever told me to fail quickly or uh, slowly, because there are two very different models that that exist, right? And the on the private side, if you fail a couple of times, but then you create, you know, Windows or the Mac or the iPhone, you know, whatever the innovation is, wow, you're a genius, right? You fail one time on the public side, and you're in the newspaper for being the dummy that did X, Y, or Z. And so if you just think about public sector transportation agencies, for a long time, they've been dominated by engineers because, you know, that's what we were doing. We were building and designing roads and bridges, right? And when if you know engineers, like I know engineers, they're pretty risk-averse people. And then government engineers are the, are the ones that are even going to be even more risk-averse, right? Because they're like, I, I went into a job that was specifically designed around making sure that we had some longevity with this. And then the procurement systems are set up to not deploy quickly. So I think the challenge for us as public sector leaders, private sector entrepreneurs, how do we bring the best of the private sector and unleash public sector leaders to feel safe and to feel comfortable so we can get this deployment going more rapidly? So how do we do that? How do we give those 
tools for the leaders in the public sector? So I think what you have to find is you have to find those states and places. I think it takes going to like one of our members, like city of Washington, D.C., where I am right now, and saying, okay, you've said you want Vision Zero, and Jeff Rudian uh, is on the board of ITS America and does some great stuff in terms of deploying innovation. You've said that you want to get to Vision Zero. There's a bunch of things we know that work with that, you know, lowering speed limits and designing safer roadways. But what are the tech solutions, right? So is it LIDAR detection of pedestrians in intersections? Is it, you know, cameras that are detecting scooters and other things? Is it V2X? Is it smart infrastructure? Like pick one, two, three things. You know, the the work that you did out in Las Vegas, I know that got a lot of uh, attention in terms of reducing response times for emergency vehicles. So I, I think it's a matter of finding something that works really well and then finding the places that are willing to take a chance on deployment and then saying to people, listen, you know, we made it work here. And I think that's what public sector folks love to see is somebody else has done this and it has succeeded. Because if we get that, you know, if you ever watch those wildlife shows, nobody ever wants to be the lone gazelle down by the water because bad things happen to that gazelle. But if there's a herd, then good things happen. So I think it's like an incremental approach to getting folks to like, you do this and then I do this and I build off of that. And then you can stair step it that way. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting too, because you're when you talk about risk, absolutely right. And what I've seen too is that even varies by various states and communities and regions. We'll have some countries or states that are not not as risk takers as the private sector, of course, but a lot more about we want to be in the forefront of trying things and seeing if they work or not. Where other places that are much more conservative and you know want to make sure when they go out to constituents that they're using the taxpayer money for things that work. So it, it's interesting how that dynamic plays across the geography as well in terms of forget the politics even aside, just the, the makeup of the communities within re- each region. Speaking of some of those advancements, uh, a big topic that's talked about is autonomous vehicles, of course. And when you talk about autonomous vehicles, the communication of how those vehicles would communicate one another is another hot topic that's in the news uh, over the last, what seems like the last few years, really. Everyone talks about 5.9 gigahertz and spectrum, but for, for our listeners and for kind of layman's term, explain to in the most basic term, what does that even mean? Why is that being talked about as so important, uh, splitting the spectrum and, and giving it out to for commercial use? Why does it even matter? You know, the best way to describe the safety spectrum, the 5.9 gigahertz space safety spectrum that we talk about is about 15 years ago, they set aside seven lanes of this really big highway and said, on these seven lanes, we're going to set aside, again, this is a digital highway, not, you know, like a highway out there, but we're going to set aside for wire, you know, for these devices to communicate these seven lanes, and we're going to make this for safety critical messages between vehicles. So, you know, if this vehicle is driving down the road and slams on the brakes, you know, we want a safety message to travel with no other messages on this dedicated pathway to another vehicle and it will receive it. And if it wants to hit its brakes, you know, that's that's the way it's going to work. And they also set that up so that they knew that someday there'd be a lot of other folks wanting to crowd into this space. And they're like, we want to just set these aside for vehicle safety critical communications because we know how critically important that will be in the future. And if you think about it, if you're 
driving home tonight and you hit your garage door opener, you want your garage door to open. You don't want everyone's on the street to open up. You don't want you know, somebody else to drive down the street, hit their garage door opener and yours open. You want your message from your garage door opener to go to your garage door and open it. That's the fundamental thing about the safety spectrum is that it's there to preserve safety critical communications for vehicles to talk to everything. That's we say V to X. And it's to ensure that that safety critical message goes directly to where it needs to go. And what is happening now is the FCC is saying, hey, we really want there to be other folks in this part of the band that was set aside. And by the way, there's a chance that when they start broadcasting in that band, that you won't be able to hear your safety messages. And so for those of us who have come at this from a safety perspective, we're like, listen, we're open to sharing. We're open to you know having different folks in this band, but you got to make sure that when my safety message goes through, that nothing else is interfering with it. No you know, Netflix or, you know, movie downloads or ads are in there, my safety message goes through unimpeded. And so that's the crux of the fight. We're still fighting because at the end of the day, as we started this conversation with, we think that the best tool in the toolbox to reduce, you know, the tens of thousands of Americans that lose their lives every year is connecting vehicles to the infrastructure, to vulnerable users, to cyclists, pedestrians. And we're hopeful that we get a positive resolution on this. And I've actually, I was just recently reading, I think from Ken Leonard from the USDOT that COVID has kind of pushed forward the beginning of the use of uh, commercial use of, of the spectrum, which just even more raises the urgency, right? That that's figuring it, what we're going to do with that, I think is a, an urgent matter because also from a business perspective, the OEMs are, are waiting a little bit on the sidelines, both in terms of what parameters, whether it's DSRC and kind of CVDX on the 5G side, but then also what will happen with the spectrum as well. And I think that that is the, the frustrating piece here, right? Is that, you know, Toyota was ready to deploy uh, across their entire fleet. And then a couple of FCC commissioners two years ago sent them a letter saying, yeah, maybe you shouldn't do that. And then they turn around and say, well, look, nobody's deployed anything. There's a here and now conversation. And quite frankly, I think we've moved past the DSRC CV to X piece. I mean, I think that the market is going to decide where we end up on that. But I almost feel like we're having a very short-sighted discussion about the spectrum now, because I feel like if you have the 75 megahertz that is set aside or the several channels that are that are in there, we're going to need that and probably even more as you move into autonomy and you know just the sheer amount of data that is being put off of these platforms. And even if you're doing edge computing and all that stuff, you still need to be able to communicate back and forth and over the air updates and all this stuff that's coming 5G. I just feel like it's a really short-sighted time to be like, let's take this thing that all of these billions of dollars of research and deployment has gone into. We're on the cusp of deployment. And now we're going to move other folks in there. And quite frankly, you know, you mentioned the, the deployment that the FCC authorized during COVID. You know, they really strictly limited how those telecom providers were able to use it so that if there was any V to X, that they would not interfere with it. And so I'm saying 100%, if you want to use those same rules of application, come on in and we'll share the 5.9 with any unlicensed device. Just do the testing to show that when you put that in there, that it doesn't impede the safety critical messages. 
because that's the part that they seem unwilling to do. They were directed by Congress to say, okay, if you want to put it in there, do some testing, make sure it works. And now they're saying, well, we're not even going to bother doing the testing. It seems like a spurious argument to me. Let's step out of the weeds a little bit. And uh, not, not that it, it, it diminishes the importance of this, but looking at this as a concept, really we're, we're focusing on it because it is a critical path for how we communicate with autonomous vehicles. And so a question that you'll hear often, right? And one I want to pose to you is, we've been talking about autonomous vehicles for a long time now. If you go by the announcements five years ago, then we should be driving all in autonomous vehicles at this point. Why aren't we there yet? And what will it take for us to get there in the true sense of it, where it won't be a concept that we're talking about, but rather you step out to the street. I live here in LA. I step out to the road and I'll have a mix of vehicles that either have some autonomy, whether it's on the transit side or, or mixed mode with uh, human driven vehicles. When are we getting to that level? Yeah. You know, we've been saying um, autonomous vehicles are right around the corner for a number of years now. And I would say that they're still right around the corner because they've figured out about 98% of what AVs need to be able to do, maybe 95% of what they need to be able to do. And they got it all figured out, but they're just certain edge cases, right? Like there are things like a autonomous vehicle comes out of a tunnel into a rising sun. And it's really hard for optical sensors to, to detect a pedestrian against that backdrop, right? That's a challenge. I, I was in Beijing two years ago and looking down out of this car company's headquarters at this really busy road. And there are like 12 lanes merging into six lanes and a really almost a ballet of like movements of vehicles trying to all merge. And merging is really hard for autonomous vehicles. You know, they default to safety. And I remember reading a, a study a few years ago that said that the introduction of autonomous vehicles into Paris would actually degrade the performance of the system because, you know, they're so cautious in these roundabouts, they don't, they're backing traffic up. But once you got to 30% penetration, then things got better. So I think everybody's like, why can't you just like wake up one day and walk outside and everything's autonomous? And, you know, it, it doesn't, quite work that way. I think we're probably about 10 to 15 years away from like where you're just like an AV is ubiquitous. I think if you look out 10 to 15 years, the technology gets better. We are able to like plan for a society in which we've had some automation. But most importantly, the number one driver for me is once you have things in place, you can really start to drive down that 38,000 fatalities a year, and you could save literally hundreds of thousands of lives going forward. On that note, though, is there some specific effort that is on the side of the infrastructure or the government that has to happen to enable that? I mean, one thing is the technology within the vehicles, right? And, and to your point, we're now at the edge cases, which are critical, the 98%, so that last 2%, and many players are in this space. Is there something that ha has to happen on the backbone of the infrastructure in order to enable that adoption to truly happen, though? The automakers have been pretty clear that they're going to design AVs to operate on the existing infrastructure, that they don't need massive amounts of investment in order to make this work. Because I think, you know, we have challenges funding infrastructure in the United States. And if you're going to say you need a pavement condition of X or you know, some sort of level of broadband deployment or connectivity in some way, you know, then then you probably can't get there. You can't get there everywhere. 
I will say, you know, in my experience as a DOT director, one of the least sexy things that we would ever have talked about a few years ago would have been striping, right? Like striping is one of those things of if you don't get to it, your budget's tight, yeah, you let it go. Striping's pretty darn important when it comes to, you know, autonomous vehicles, you know, issues like GPS, right? So outside of that traditional infrastructure, next-gen GPS is going to be pretty critical for our country to make sure that, you know, we have the the specificity of location data being up there. I actually feel like the technology is going to aid infrastructure. I just met with somebody the other day and they've got this tire sensing technology where they're going to be able to send back to folks who normally pay for that kind of data, you know, the the smoothness of the road and where there are potholes. You know, that's how we're actually going to be able to harness this new wave of technology so that public sector agencies actually become benefactors of this deployment. Yeah, and that's a whole Pandora box of questions, maybe for for episode uh, two continued on that, just in terms of thinking about the legacy infrastructure we have and when it starts to erode to, to, road to what we actually need. But I guess it brings me to my, my last question is really, let's imagine, right, we've had all these monumental achievements in the past, whether it's the uh, highway system that Eisenhower kind of started off and and other modes of transit that came about that moved us from the horse carriages to where we are today. And if you had this, you know, if you were to imagine you had a blank slate and to that matter, an open checkbook, okay? Because obviously that has to come along with that. Where do you start today? Knowing what we know from the past and looking at where we want to go to in the future. So if I am the infrastructure fairy and I've got my magic wand and I'm flitting about the country you know, the first thing I would do is I would say, what did we get right? The most important thing I think we can do is to say, look, for 100 years, we've been building and repairing roads and bridges. How do we deploy technology so that we can actually stop just trying to move cars from A to B and think about how we move people and goods in a more intelligent way, right? So whether it's intelligent rent metering or, you know, using predictive analytics as you have and others around, you know, like, Here's where the demand for transportation is going to be. And let's treat it more as a commodity and be intelligent about the way that we allocate these resources. How do we invest in transit so that cities can flourish, but then also use technology to expand the envelope so that we don't have transit deserts and other places, food deserts where folks can't get there? How do we use technology to improve things for people with disabilities? I think that's the piece is how do you take technology, harness it with the engineering know-how that we have so that we can reduce fatalities, reduce emissions, reduce congestion, and increase equality on the system. That's not an easy uh, easy lift as as we know in the in the current environment because really at the core of that it's a lot of it is focused on moving from the physical realm to the di- digital realm using data rather than asphalt itself as a mechanism to, to solve problems. So really really interesting concept and I think that it's one that, uh, Maybe in the next round of uh, stimulus coming from the feds down to the down to the states, we can name it the infrastructure fairy. Uh, and I think that's a better name than some <laughs> acronyms that they use they use today. But on that note, Chilin, I want to thank you for for joining this fascinating conversation today and and uh, sharing a little bit of your insights uh, from the transportation space. No, it's always a pleasure to talk and uh, just appreciate your work in this space. And happy to chat with you anytime you want. All right, thank you very much.